Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Magdalena, welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Thank you so much. I'm very excited about this. This first Canadian on, which is always quite exciting. Okay, in 30 seconds or less, are you able to tell us who you are, what you do, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about? Okay, I am Magdalena Kaiser, and I am... My full-time job is the Director of Public Relations at the Wine Marketing Association in Ontario, Canada. So I promote BQA Wines, and I also uh, collaborate and work to promote um, with Canadian wineries uh, in international markets as well. But I've been in the industry for a long time. My father co-founded Inniskillen Wines in the 1970s, and um, about four years ago, I had wanted to learn um, just hands-on learning to uh, produce wine myself. So I have a little project called Tiny Batch Wine. And I've learned a lot in the last four years. So that's exciting too. That is exciting. Um, So one of the first things I want to ask you, I've never used any um, uh, Canadian examples, particularly not in any of the paper four exams or, or practice essays that's mainly because i really don't understand how it works now you've got a quasi monopoly is that right well in canada there are different provinces and each province uh manages alcohol beverage themselves so most of them have monopolies some of the provinces uh, have kind of partial monopolies uh, but in ontario where i live uh it's essentially a monopoly but in the last um, about four Five years ago, uh, a number of additional licenses were issued to grocery stores. But with that, actually, um, the LCBO essentially is the distrib- is a distributor to the grocery stores. Uh, I will also add that this past year with COVID, uh, some things have you know kind of changed because the government has tried to uh, provide additional support to the restaurant industry. Before, uh, before now and before COVID, a restaurant could not sell uh, direct to a consumer. Of course, you would consume the alcohol in the restaurant. But they came up with a temporary solution that they had in place until this past December and now has been extended uh, for an unlimited time. So what restaurants can do now is essentially almost become a bottle shop. Uh, and sell directly to consumers. So that has really changed the model in Ontario. Do you see that being a permanent fixture? My my understanding is that yes, it's it's permanent, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now, how does um, Ontario differ from I know Alberta, which doesn't have a monopoly? I think I don't. Uh, are they all similar kind of monopolies? Is there an easy comparison or is it just a case that people need to go and check out Wikipedia and, and, and have a look through? Yeah, you know what, to be honest, um, off the top of my head, I don't have all the details handy. It's probably best to just check. Uh, but yes, Alberta would be the most open uh, market and uh, BC is slightly different when it comes to Ontario with respect to how their local wines are sold. Uh, Quebec is also a monopoly with 
different types of stores. So it's not black and white. And um, while I do know a lot about these monopolies, I don't have kind of the, the exact details handy. And what are the major obvious pros and cons that you can see of it working? Like, for instance, in Sweden, um, they have um, a great selection of uh, some wines at prices, but um, but the the range is smaller than elsewhere. I mean, is that the same in Ontario? How does that work in terms of range, in terms of consumer choice? Are there any sort of obvious pros and cons? Um, because obviously no system is perfect. Well, yes, I think there's always pros and cons with every uh, with every system. I would say that actually uh, studying as a Master of Wine student uh, and comparing it to, let's say, some people who might be in a market where they don't, we actually have uh, quite a lot of variety, uh, broad-based variety. And so, you know, you can shop the world essentially. And um, so that would be a positive if you're trying to look for different wines from everywhere. Uh, Of course, you know, there's lots of things that monopolies bring with respect to uh, distribution throughout the entire province, consistent, um, you know, quality service and so on. And of course, there are other, the other side of it is perhaps there is certain limitations on certain wine styles that, um, that maybe a wine shop with a, a focus on a particular region, uh, the LCBO wouldn't have. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's really, um, there are definitely pros and cons and it can get quite political. <laughs> so I'll probably step away from that question at this time. Fair enough. So are you able to give any generalizations about Canadian or particularly Ontarian? Ontario, what, how, do you, Ontario, how do you call them? Ontarians. Yes. Yeah, let's mm-hmm. go with Ontarians. Um, are you able to give any generalizations about consumer trends there? What do people like? What are the big imports? Are there big brands? What? Um, how do people view wine? Are, is it a beer drinking nation? How do you, um, what are the, the, the main um, points to look at? Well, again, all of Canada is, we don't, we're not all the same because we're a really big country. Uh, we definitely are Canadian and we're proud of being Canadian. Uh, but, but there are differences across the country with respect to alcohol consumption. So for instance, the, the largest, or I mean the highest alcohol consumption per capita is Quebec. Uh, and perhaps that's not surprising because they have, um, a very strong French, uh, you know, historical background and, and Ontario, we have, um, more of a British background. So that's just how that's evolved. Uh, I was just looking at the statistics the other day, actually on Canadian wine consumption compared to other places in the world. So we drink more wine per capita than, uh, let's say, the United States. Uh, We drink less than France, Italy. I don't know compared to the UK, actually. But... um, with that, we are absolutely big uh, beer consumers, for sure. Uh, having grown up in the, the industry here in Ontario, um, you know, in the 70s, there wasn't a local wine industry. So I think, you know, I would say that the local wine industry in Ontario and then in British Columbia has started to kind of help support over all of those years more of a wine culture. Uh, and so... So, yeah, I think that helps uh, you answer that particular question. Perfect, perfect. Let's move on to production, Canadian production. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. I always associate Canada with snow, huskies, mounties. I'm pretty much 
due south the tv program from the 90s that's where i got most of my information on it but you're not um <laughs> well, actually every country geography is not my my strong point now but you've um you're not um you're not as cold as it seems that you're like is it the same latitude as italy isn't it as parts of italy as i understand it yeah actually so, ontario is the same latitude as tuscany okay that, I mean, so, that is way yeah that is not where we um we consider it um, and is in terms of production, what are we looking at? So I've, I made some notes from your thing at sixty-seven pound, which is like one hundred and eighty wineries and thirty million bottles. Yeah. Is that about right? That's right for Ontario. Yeah. So for all of Canada, uh, we ha- have. Um, so Ontario has about seventeen thousand acres, which is about the same uh, area as about Chianti Classico, not Chianti, but Chianti Classico. Um, and uh, then all of Canada is about 30,000 acres. So, um, yeah, so we're not a huge wine producing region, but um, we obviously have, a, like everywhere in the world, has have a very unique climate. And, of course, of course, there are similarities across the country, but then, of course, nuances and differences, depending if you are in Ontario or British Columbia or uh, Nova Scotia and also Quebec. Those are the four primary wine growing regions. And yes, we do get lots of cold. Uh, we get consistent, at least in Ontario, we get consistently cold winters, uh, which is why we've become known for producing ice wine. But, and actually, I just came back from a walk and it's uh, minus 11 with the wind chill. So this past week, we started picking ice wine. It's slightly late in the season, but we have picked as late as March sometimes. And, uh, and so... Well, the one thing I like to remind people about with ice wine and producing wine and table wine in Ontario is that you need, even for ice wine, we need to have a warm growing condition through the summer and ripen grapes in order to make ice wine. So I think, you know, the, the, the most important thing to remember for um, our wine producing regions, especially Ontario, that's where I'm speaking from and that's where I live, is that it's it's a very kind of dramatic shift in weather from uh summer you know summer spring fall uh and winter and so that's what happens we have a really concentrated growing season in the summertime and so uh and then in the fall often we'll have uh kind of a a nice fall hopefully sometimes lots of rain and then of course in winter time it's a very dramatic cold so it again it's just it's a unique uh, climate and we have continental climate in Ontario. We have the great lakes, which is so important. They're really like oceans to us. They moderate the climate. If we didn't have the great lakes, then yes, absolutely. We would be too far inside North America probably to grow grapes. Um, So that kind of speaks to a bunch of your questions, but feel free to ask other things. Where are your biggest export markets? I imagine that a lot of your market is domestic and I know there's and I want to ask you a little bit about tourism in a second but whereabouts do you see big um, export markets I know my first ice wine was your family's I imagine that's probably true of a lot of people listening Um, but yeah where do you see um, stuff going who and where do you see it growing? Well for a long time kind of the two biggest markets have been the United States and Asia, um, very much China, mostly because of ice wine. That said, so about 50% of the exports 
in Ontario are ice wine. But I like to remind people that really only 5% of what we produce is ice wine. Uh, this past year, because of COVID, uh, there, are, there have been challenges with ice wine for lots of reasons. Export in general kind of uh, slowed down. And also uh, people traveling, of course, really did affect. Uh, usually we get people, visitors and coming and, and buying, and many of them, international visitors, certainly like to take ice wine home. But, but absolutely China and the UK, uh, sorry, the, uh, the US being the biggest. That said, there are uh, a, kind of in the last number of years more interest from the Scandinavian countries. Uh, we do a tasting every year in UK. So little, you know, gro- there is growth in some of those markets, not as large, as I said, as, as Asia and, and the US. But I do think things are shifting a little bit uh, as we become more well known for our table wines. And even with Asia, they have, um, you know, started buying red table wine, just like they have for many other countries. So there is growth. Uh, uh, and I, and again, from the US side of it, it's probably for lots of reasons, you know, when you're when you're working on export, it's it's a specific business plan that makes sense for your winery. And uh, people, you know, we, we speak the same language uh, with our neighbors to the south. It's close in proximity for us. So it's, you know, it makes sense to, uh, to tap into that market. But of course, the United States, as you know, is while it's one of the greatest opportunities, it's a very challenging market because of the way the three-tier system works and the fact that each and every uh, state is different. So really, your, you know, your marketing uh, investment and to go to market is, is expensive and time-consuming. But then again, as I said, it's much closer than getting on a plane and flying 14 hours to Singapore, uh, or I don't know, Singapore, sorry, Shanghai. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's always pros and cons with every export market, I would say. I guess. Now, how much do you do in terms of both cellar door tourism and direct to consumers? Um, so I know there's there's a certain amount of ice wine trails, and I know New York State does it. Do you tie up with anything that they do? How do you approach that, or is it not really a concern? Well, uh, sorry. So I'm just going to try to. You had a couple things in there. Um, Sorry, I'm trying to... Like compound uh, questions. Like, it's a, like, yeah, just sorry. answer, go with it as you want. Like. <laughs> as I'm following through. So tourism is very important to Ontario wineries and Canadian wineries. Uh, there are about 3 million visitors per year for wine tourism in Canada. And we in Ontario host about 2 million visitors per year for wine country travel. And so wineries uh, in the 1970s when the first winery license uh, in 50 years had been gained by Inniskillen Wines. Uh, it was the beginning of uh, kind of the pioneering of developing wineries for visitation. And so now we have 180 wine, almost a little over 180 wineries, and probably about 50% of them only sell at cellar door. Really? Yes. So 50% of the wineries sell at cellar door only. So tourism is really important and uh, we we support that uh, our the wine marketing association we we publish an annual travel guide and uh, many of the wineries uh, are really a highly developed 
or the regions are highly developed for, they have great infrastructure for hosting people. Uh, specifically, well, we in Niagara, uh, we in Ontario uh, actually have three primary regions, the Niagara Peninsula and then Lake Erie North Shore and Prince Edward County. And then, of course, there's a number of emerging regions. <clears throat> the Niagara Peninsula is the most kind of, it's, uh, probably has it's more concentrated a concentration of wineries over 100 wineries and also we're really close to Niagara Falls so there's all kinds of infrastructure for for uh, visiting and uh, Prince Edward County is uh, also a great experience it's just more rustic a little bit more rural and spread out as is Lake Erie North Shore so each of the regions have definitely their own flavor and style with respect to how they're hosting uh, hosting people. Cool. Can you give me an overview of your appellations? So when do they come in? What do they cover? How do they work? What kind of legislations do they cover? Um, and how do they compare to sort of other appellations as we understand them? Uh, so the VQA, the Vintners Quality Alliance, uh, it's an appellation system that was modeled after European appellation systems. I think the main thing to remember is, so it's 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 about origin. Uh, it guarantees that 100% of the Ontario, the grapes that are used for the wines are 100% Ontario. Uh, we have three primary appellations: Niagara Peninsula, Lake Erie North Shore, and Prince Edward County. Another 10 sub appellations were created in Niagara Peninsula specifically in 2005, and then in the South Islands in Lake Erie North Shore was added in 2015. Um, the, uh, again, like I said, it's, it's really about origin, that's the key, but there is also a tasting panel, which uh, people need to pass in order to, uh, to qualify within uh, BQA. So it was originally, uh, originally designed by the industry as an industry-led initiative, and then they went to the government to have it put into law so that we could really, you know, elevate the quality and, and identify these regions early on. Um, I think I would like to also just mention that um, uh, we actually recently, I think it's four years ago, this is bad now because I don't have that number handy, I should know it off the top of my head, but we were the second place in the world to create an orange wine category. Uh, the first was South Africa. So it was actually in 2017. And so that is uh, when you're making orange wine or skin fermented white is, is what it, the category is specifically. You need to actually ferment on the skins for a minimum of 10 days. And uh, so that's kind of a newer category. So I guess I would say is that there's, uh, you know, there's legislation on all kinds of things regards to what wine styles, when you're making certain wine styles, what the labeling has to be, what varieties are allowed to be used. In the case of ice wine, for instance, you need to pick at minus eight degrees Celsius, where in Germany and um, Austria, they require minus seven. You know, there's a minimum bricks uh, that needs to be uh, an average bricks level in order for the ice wine production. So it really just ensures quality and origin as the two primary factors i would say do you have any rootstock or clones or any other weird um laws that go with it or is it more 
free and open for experimentation. And it's also quite interesting to hear about uh, orange wine, because this is another question which is not unrelated, but I'll, we'll come on to that in a sec. Yeah, so there are no uh, guidelines on specific rootstocks or clones um, that need to be used for certain varieties, if that's what you're asking. In terms of orange wine having its own category within the appellation, that's pretty interesting because it's still very, very niche in the UK, at least. It's growing, I guess. What are the real growing categories there, both in terms of production and, I suppose, in terms of consumption? Well, we don't really have full details on consumption, but actually, just because I kind of have a personal passion for orange wine uh, as of late in the last couple of years, and really kind of digging in to understand that, uh, there really, the first year it was produced in 2017, there were only about three or four wineries that produced it. And now I would say, I think on a recent kind of audit, I think probably about maybe almost 20 wineries. Uh, and in the same, actually, orange wine and ice wine, interestingly, uh, part of what is required as well is you need to pre-register that you're intending to make them on November 15th. So in the case of orange wine, you need to register the orange wine to say, I have this orange wine. Um, and you, you know, give all the information to VQA to say that that will be the category. So what that is doing is it's saying that the wine was made intentionally in that style and it wasn't an accident later on, let's say. And so because, you know, obviously orange wines are more oxidative and, uh, and so on, there's different uh, characters to look for so that they would need to know that in the tasting panel that it was orange wine. And then the same with ice wine. So you need to actually uh, pre-register ice wine as well. So it's, you know, a big question people ask, you know, right now is that, oh, is the ice wine harvest, uh, coincidentally, there is less uh, people that decided to make ice wine this year. Uh, Ontario wineries decided to make less for a bunch of different reasons. But by the time the weather is a factor, they've already had to decide in November whether they're planning to make it or not. So it's not just, oh, this is how much ice wine we had because of the weather. It was what the wineries planned to make because essentially we get cold enough weather every year to make ice wine. So sorry, that was kind of an orange wine and then winding around back to ice wine answer to your question. No, 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 that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. I also, you talked about your own passion. So let's talk about your wines. Right. Okay. Uh, we, I tried your wine. Uh, when was it? It was like the last day is of the seminar after having what seven hundred wines or Christ knows what it was during that week. Still remember <laughs> it, and it was banging. So it was delicious. So talk to me. How? What's your approach or reproach? How do you go about making wine? What do you plant? How do you ferment it? Um, and if you can talk about a load of enzymes and a load of other stuff that no one else wants to talk about, that would be lovely. Okay, I'll do my best. So maybe just kind of chiming in here. Uh, so what you're referring to is uh, we're both Master of Wine students and we were at seminar in Bordeaux last year. So uh, I brought and, and, and so for me, um, I mentioned that uh, I think I mentioned uh, early on that I grew up in the industry and my father was the winemaker co-founder for Inniskill and Wine. So I grew up in the business from early days and just, you know, loving and learning about wine. And then my path kind of uh, while I worked at the winery when I was very young. 
uh, and would help my father and, and knew a lot of things, it didn't really end up in the winemaking side specifically. You know, my path ended up being more on the marketing side with the job that I do now. But the Master of Wine program, you know, as I continue to learn more about wine, I felt it was really important to kind of reconnect back to, well, not reconnect, as part of my study learning, hands-on learning, I wanted to make something. So um, I told my dad I wanted to make a barrel of, of red wine actually with him uh, four years ago. So that year, unfortunately, just as I was getting the grapes, and we're talking a very small amount of grapes, I think I had like, I don't know, 40 liters of, of must. And I got from a uh, from a producer, and, and they they gave me some Cabernet Franc. So unfortunately, he went into the hospital that same week, and he passed away two weeks later. But it so for me, it became I guess I was determined because I didn't get to do the things with him that I wanted to. And the way I look at wine is different now from the production side. I mean, we all study and read about it, but until and you know, home winemakers would be able to say this as well is that you really, you know, you understand the science and, and everything when you're, you are actually doing it. Mm-hmm. So what happened is uh, that really tiny amount was being made in my garage. Uh, and I probably didn't have, well, it was just kind of a whirlwind time. And also I didn't really pay attention uh, because I did pay attention. I just really didn't know what I was doing, even though I knew the theory behind it and just... Um, So the following year, I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a barrel of wine because that's what I had wanted to do with my dad. And I really love Gamay Noir. So uh, it's a great variety for Ontario. Um, We have, you know, Pinot Noir is wonderful. Cabernet Franc is great. And we can grow Cabernet Sauvignon and uh, and Syrah and a few other varieties. But Gamay is, you know, really uh, cold resistant. It, It makes an excellent quality wine. I mean, I'm I'm a Beaujolais lover. And so, and I'm a Burgundy lover, a Pinot lover, but, and so I just felt um, we had been producing Gamay for many years. It's not the most planted red in, in Ontario, but I just, um, so I got my hands on some fruit from uh, one of, you know, one of Ontario's uh, great growers. And so um, I got that and I made Gamay. So then I needed a name. So I thought, you know what, I'm really using this to record my learnings. And I created a name called Tiny Batch Wine. And I started an Instagram account. And that for me is kind of like a wine diary. So I take pictures, I talk about what I'm doing, I get results when I get lab results on, you know, the sugar levels and so on, the pH, the acid, all these things. And so for me, this has been truly an eye-opening experience in you know every little step every decision that you have to make and also what I've learned is that tiny batches are the hardest batches to make and so it makes you appreciate when winemakers who might work at a wine a mid-sized winery or whatever size winery it might be it's there are just so many additional factors when you're making things in small batches and so it's kind of a new level of respect because when you're making 20 barrels of something and one barrel is maybe not exactly what you wanted or is a bit different, you have the blending ability. But when you only have one barrel, that's your barrel. And so you kind of have to live with what you're making. And um, yeah, so 
that's what happened with the gamay and then what happened after that is last year not 2020 but 2019 uh, i thought you know i met actually um simon from the amber revolution visited ontario and uh he just was taught you know we he tasted a bunch of wines from ontario and we talked about the new category and so on and then i thought wow you know what it would be really interesting to try to make some orange wine so i did and i made it out of gewurztraminer and uh that's what you tasted in uh, bordeaux because i just brought some samples i remember it well it was it was absolutely delicious well it was a bit stressful because it wasn't my intention necessarily to do zero sulfur because I um I think you know my dad was never my dad probably would have never not used sulfur I'm not sure if I'm getting that double negative or whatever right he would have absolutely (laughs) said you have to have sulfur uh so for whatever reason uh you know I was testing the wine tasting the wine and what I found, and I made it again this year, but I, uh, so when I made the orange wine last year, I fermented it on skins for 14 days. So the minimum was 10 days, but I tasted it every day. And then at 14 days, I was kind of like, oh, you know, I, uh, I liked it. And then I was nervous because, you know, in your mind, and I've read a lot about orange wines since this, but there's kind of like a curve, I guess. And it's almost, it's interesting because sometimes longer on skins doesn't mean that you get actually more tannins. They kind of, it's not a linear equation, I guess. It's, so it's almost like you need to taste it every day. And sometimes it goes over a hump and then it gets rounded out again. So I have read, I don't know if this is true, but that it's almost like you can, you ferment it on skins up till 30 days. And then if you're not going to press off, then then you kind of need to leave it for 180 days. It's almost like it goes through this particular like sweet spots and then there's this middle time. I don't know because I've only done the 14 days and then this last year I pushed myself and thought I want to try 30 days. So I pressed it at 29 days because that was the day that I could get to the press and press it. So <laughs> that's a limiting the other thing factor, is, isn't it, for a little while? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's the other thing is I have learned is you might have your kind of like dream vision of what you want to do, but then practicality comes into play and it's kind of like, okay, this is what I'm doing because this is what I have to do today. So is your fermentation totally... Um, indigenous or did you inoculate did you need to feed the yeast or anything or was it just a case of mash up some grapes and leave it in a vat so i did not inoculate it was wild uh, yeast fermentation i did add some enzymes um yeah i added enzyme no you know no nutrients not en- yeah nutrients i added um yeast nutrients not enzymes and so um I did add some of that, you know, because I have a lot of winemaker friends and I, you know, part of what I'm fortunate for is that they're all very, you know, gracious and in uh, letting me ask opinions because, but ultimately it's my decision. So I can ask five or six of them who I know and I like, what do you do and why do you do that? And then they say, well, you could do this or you could do that, but that's, you know, kind of up to you. And the same with the sulfur, 
what I was going to say is in the end, for whatever reason, I didn't sell for it and it was completely fine and stable. And then I kind of did a little trial on, tested some winemaker friends and said, would you add sulfur at this point? Actually, I did actually bench trials where I added different amounts of sulfur to taste the differences. And so what happens is, especially with orange wine, I guess, because it does have certain characteristics that are more, you know, like tea-like and different. It's almost like when you put the sulfur in, it almost masked some of the good qualities so and I don't think that's necessarily true of all wines I'm not saying that you, people shouldn't use sulfur because I've used sulfur for all my wine like for the gamay that I made for instance so so anyways that's yeah it's I guess again it was a little bit of experimental and not cut and dry but but they're all choices that you have to make and you know wild fermentation is a great idea and sounds really cool which it is but then you have to manage the risk factor if you get a stuck fermentation or something like that, right? And uh, Or as you know, you might get unusual, you know, depending on which uh, yeasts end up doing what, you know, fermenting at different points through the fermentation stages, you might end up with different characteristics that you don't want. So, so or it might not ferment dry and then you might end up with residual sugar that you don't want all those kinds of things. So it is, yeah, it's just, it's a stressful, every decision matters. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a, it's a learning curve for sure. How is it coming on a year later since I've tasted it? I mean, I, it felt like it had the structure and the acidity to last to it. Giverts doesn't always have. Um, how do you see it going on? Well, I just tasted some with um, my friend the other day, actually. Um, she, uh, I sent her some and um, she tasted it and then we were kind of Zoom call tasting it. Um, yeah, like I like to taste it from time to time to see it's how it's evolving. Because again, it didn't have sulfur. But it's completely, it's almost like getting slightly rich. The color's a little bit richer, I would say, but it's, but it's, it's vibrant. It's not like, you know what I mean? Like it's not oxidized to the kind of brown side. It's just becoming almost more of a rich. Uh, and I think it's, I really do. I mean, you've obviously probably tasted a number of orange wines from uh, great producers in Europe where, I mean, Gravner doesn't release them for like 10 years. I'm not saying mine would be in any way, shape or form compared to that. But, uh, you know, the thing is, these tannins from the skins seem to have this ability you know, ability to help. It's providing you the structure uh, to be able to uh, to age longer. And yes, Gewürztraminer is generally not high acid, but my pH and my acid were, you know, good numbers. And um, it's completely dry, so there's no, you know, it. Um, yeah, it's it seems to be. Yeah, so I guess the short answer is I'm happy with it. I'm grateful for what it's doing because again you're just nervous that I just hope it is good and I hope it stays good and I you know yeah so do you see it being a commercial venture 
going forwards? I mean, I, I presume you're selling some, but I, then there's they're selling some, and then there's living on it, which are two very different things. Like, uh, <laughs> yes. Do, do you see your life as a going forward as a winemaker? I don't think I I have no plan at this time for that. Uh, I think, you know, I just I guess I'm taking every day, uh, every day by each day you know uh, you know winemaking I think when I was young was very attractive to me when I was a teenager and I was the oldest of three and uh, my father said well you can be a winemaker but you have to go to Davis in California or you have to go to Geisenheim in Germany and of course that's a bit daunting for a young teenager I'm like oh, okay so that didn't happen so I have to say I've really fallen in love with winemaking. I, it, it's exciting. It's, you know, pe- you're creating something and, you know, it's people that love to cook or it's like being a chef and you just want to please people. It, I find it very therapeutic. And I think because you're solving things, you're making decisions, you know, you're using your mind in, in, in a creative way, but also a scientific way because you're looking at numbers. And so it brings together a lot of, you know, things in life that I really enjoy. Uh, I, but wine is, and making money with wine is really hard. <laughs> and so uh, I can't say that I have any kind of clear path to, to that at this time. Are you able and this is a this is a question that I'm sure a few people want to listen to. Are you able to share as much possible information on your winemaking process with all of us in terms of tech sheets like additions, pH, rootstocks, clones, and God knows what else that we may have to come up against in an exam question? Yeah, absolutely. I um. Oh, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, no problem. I have all that. Uh, I'm. You know, being a marketing person who's always telling people they need to have their product sheets and they need to have all this, of course, because I'm so busy. Mine are all half done. And so, uh, <laughs> but absolutely. Um, but yeah, because I think it is, uh, you know, even just Ontario in general is a good example because uh, it's a newer category for the wine style and so on. But yeah, happy to do all that. Amazing. So yeah, one final question, I guess, uh, which I <laughs> I, would like to pe- I always like to end on an optimistic note. What does the future hold for you, for Ontario? What's looking positive um, going forward for Canadian wine or, or your region in general? Well, I think, uh, there's lots of great, there's lots of things to be positive uh, for Canada and Ontario. Um, so, you know, we are a smaller wine region, but we, uh, especially Ontario and Nova Scotia are, you know, we kind of talk about Canada with as a cool climate wine region and that's certainly the case but there are of course warmer spots in parts of British Columbia so um they they are cool climate but I would say by a slightly different definition in in certain parts of it on the north north part they're actually very cool but they're a little bit more diverse but I guess sorry that's I'm taking a long time to answer what I'm trying to say here is that I think that there's a, a real interest in Canadian wine on the global level um because I think, first of all, having gone to ProWine for a number of years and um, people are just shocked that we even can grow grapes in Canada. So I think, you know, people, I think Canada, people around the world like Canada, uh, 
I think we're kind of mysterious and people think we're cold. And, and the fact that we can grow grapes, that there's interest there. And of course, because our wines, especially in Ontario, are cool climate and are kind of not as high alcohol, you know, fresh acidity, uh, varieties like Pinot Noir and, and Riesling and Chardonnay, that there's kind of this elegance. We're really kind of between old world and new world, we like to describe ourselves as. So I think that there's more people now looking for those styles of wines. Uh, we started a, a 10 years ago, Cool Climate Chardonnay celebration, and that was kind of created as a grassroots movement to say, listen, you know what, there's Chardonnay, you can still love Chardonnay, cool climate Chardonnay uh, from a new world. So we, you know, we've been really kind of trying to talk about those things. And I think now that people are becoming more interested in that, that there's definitely a great opportunity for certainly Ontario and, and, and all of Canada um, sparkling wine is something that we do well in all provinces. And, uh, of course it's difficult on an export level to compete against champagne, uh, with its size. And of course, uh, I think every new world wine region has, a, has that challenge, but domestically, you know, we're still trying to convince our, sometimes our own people internally that you can have, a you know, a traditional method sparkling wine, uh, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay that is completely world class and it's 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 actually from home and is local. So I guess I'm I'm sorry for the long winded answer, but you That's know, good. it's good. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> I think um, you know it's probably happening happening everywhere in the world. But the good opportunity for us in Ontario, especially, is that uh, people that live in Toronto and maybe don't realize their own wine country here is on their doorstep. It's only an hour and a half from Toronto when you get to Niagara and a couple hours to Prince Edward County and three hours to Lake Erie North Shore. The, I think the future for Ontarians to kind of appreciate even more about what they have in their own backyard is especially interesting and exciting for our region and um, because people are just looking to local more. I think that's everywhere in the world right now because we kind of have to. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think I think we're learning to appreciate what we have at home, you know. That, I guess, is the good thing, I would say. Well, that sounds like a lovely note to end on. Um, anyone listening who hasn't tried any Canadian wine, go and check them out. See what they're all about. Uh, they are fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, so if there's anything that I've missed in terms of Canada... Um, let me know if you can share some tech sheets and all the other techie geeky stuff that we all love to listen about that would be amazing um but yeah all that remains is to thank you so much for coming on this has been wonderful actually yeah some great stuff there well thank you very much i appreciate it and hopefully we will be able to see each other in person one day again soon i hope so yeah either either here or canada <laughs> i would love to visit yeah so yeah yes you should that would be great awesome thank you so much my glenn okay. it was fantastic Okay, thank you.